Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast and the penultimate episode for now of Wimbledon Relived. Not the penultimate episode ever of Tennis Relived, because regardless of Tennis's return, David Law is awash with ideas. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, Tennis Relived will be returning. Um, don't know where, don't know when, but, you know, I soon. Uh, okay. <laughs> Um, but for now for this fortnight this is our our penultimate episode and we have arrived in the year 2013 a very significant year in British men's tennis history when Andy Murray ended the 77 year drought for a home men's champion um, when he lifted his second Grand Slam and first Wimbledon title and I'm sure we'll get it in the neck and be accused of British bias for including this this match in this moment. And, you know, maybe we are a bit biased. We, we probably are generally a bit biased when it comes to Andy Murray. We're big fans of his. But just as we included Yannick Noah winning at, at the French Open, I do think objectively this was a huge moment in, in Wimbledon history and, and warrants inclusion for that reason alone. I would put it right near the top of the list personally in terms of significance a home british male player winning the title for the first time in 77 years i think is a massive deal and uh yes i i, I understand the arguments that that uh, that Everybody's got an opinion about this stuff, haven't they? We've had loads of replies. Most, the vast majority of people loving the series and loving the ideas. But, of course, some people will think one match warrants inclusion more than another. That's fine. This is unquestionably a match that warrants inclusion, in my view, and a story that has to be told. Matt, we're, we're in your memory territory. I'm very pleased to say, or I think we are. Oh, yeah. Although... <laughs> I must say, this, this match is such an intense experience watching it. My memories of the actual match are quite hazy, really. I, I, it's a match that I don't remember much of, apart from, obviously, the final game. Um, but well, yes. you, and, you and Judy Murray both, because um, I've done a quite a lengthy interview with, with Judy about this 
match this final and Andy's journey to to get there and uh, we'll be running that in a, in a couple of chunks a bit later on but spoiler alert she can only remember the last game she cannot remember anything else and, and you know if um, if you were to see if you were to have not watched this match or not listened to this match and just got off a plane and somebody told you it was six four seven five six four, my response would be oh fairly straightforward then I mean it and it really wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Straight sets, but not straightforward. Was it was kind of how I always look back on it. And actually, it was one of the most exhausting, draining, challenging matches of Murray's career. I think, even though it was straight sets, it just doesn't doesn't tell the story at all. Where were you all when you watched it? Oh, Matt's having to think. David, you go while Matt's. Yeah, well, Matt's I mean, I think my job my job started with me being the door security guard for the commentary <laughs> box at BBC Radio Five Live <laughs> to stop other people who shouldn't be in this tiny little four foot eleven high commentary box with a little seat at the front near the window and a, and a bench at the back where lots of people tend to like to sit and look over our shoulders as commentators so that they can watch the match and. I personally have always found that quite off-putting. So I decided to make myself, given that I wasn't commentating on this particular match, I made myself security so that I could just stop people coming in. Right, David was a bouncer. What were you up to, Matt? <laughs> how did you... Sorry, just to go back on David's story. How did you watch the match if you were outside the door? Well, the the, the door is right next to a little photographer's pit as well, where there's a, also a gap that you can see and hear everything. I mean, it's one right. of the all-time great sort of positions. So actually what you were doing was securing yourself the best seat in the house <laughs> while was... pretending that you were, were performing an altruistic task on behalf of the BBC. I was successfully multitasking. Um, but I was, I mean, my intentions were good, but then I, but then the realization hit me, actually, if I, given my height, just crane to my right, I can see over the shoulders of the photographers. So I was doing exactly <laughs> what I'm complaining about everybody else doing. Um, but now after about 20 minutes of that, I went off and sort of made myself available for whatever I needed to do. And I mean, my main role that day was to do post-match interviews with members of family and and celebrities and all sorts of people um which was interesting but uh, yeah I, I saw i saw it all pretty much and i heard all of the five live commentary that day um and it was really something what a day matt have you remembered yeah i mean nothing nothing particularly interesting really i was just at home i i remember that uh, that wimbledon had actually been one that I struggled to watch much of because I was doing lots of university open day trips. And I remember being on the uh, train back from Durham where I eventually went when uh, Nadal lost to Steve Darcy and I was listening to that on the radio. So I just think I wanted to just be at home in front of the telly. I'm, I'm pretty sure the BBC did about two hours build up and I probably had it on you know, from about midday just watching everything, soaking it all up, just, yeah, just at home with family. 
at least two hours build up, mm. I would say. I mean, they pulled in everybody that's ever held a tennis racket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it was like Got their opinion. my memories of the FA Cup final when that used to be just about the only match on TV in the 80s. And they would start the day with a video of the players boarding the coach at about <laughs> eight in the morning. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was... It was just such a burning hot day, wasn't it? That's that's the other thing that really gets me. Is I've I've always worn suit and tie to go to Wimbledon to work, and walking in that morning, I did have to think. You know, I I might actually unbutton the top one today. <laughs> of course, I didn't, but I did consider it. It was the perfect day for a barbecue, which is what I was hosting in uh, in my garden here in Putney for my for my family. Um, I I. I baked the Mary Berry Wimbledon cake. How did that turn out? <laughs> um, splendidly, splendidly. They're very accessible recipes, the Mary Berries. Um, and made sausage rolls with little uh, cocktail stick flags in with Andy Murray's face on them. Right. Uh, <laughs> what, what was uh, in this Wimbledon cake? Uh, in the, it's strawberries and cream, David. It's like a Victoria... It's a, it's a fancy Victoria sponge vibe. Yeah, Matt, you might be able to tell she didn't save me any at all <laughs> well you were busy having the best seats in the house anyway other things that were happening in the year 2013 were that lance armstrong was uh, admitting to doping in all of his tour de france wins the boston marathon bombings were in the year 2013 nelson mandela died in that year and prince george was born the uh, what is he third in line to the throne after Charles and William? Thinking on my feet there, I think that's right. Um, House of Cards was released on Netflix, and because a lot of Pope facts in our lists, aren't there? We do like a Pope fact. Is Sarah really into the the Pope? No, she's just googled 2013, and <laughs> the internet is really into the Pope. Google the loves internet it. loves Popes. Um, pope. Benedict the 16th announced his re resignation. We've had a lot of popes in recent years. Uh, and he became the first pope to resign since 1415. Just didn't fancy it. Didn't, wasn't the job he hoped it would be. Um, <laughs> so that was 2013 away from tennis. Uh, <laughs> 2013 in tennis. Start, well, the year started with... Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic competing in the Australian Open final and they'd competed in the US Open final the autumn before and of course that was the scene of Andy Murray's first Grand Slam triumph a match where he had led by two sets to love ended up getting pegged back by Djokovic and eventually eking out victory in, in a fifth after a a lengthy bathroom break, Murray, to go and stare himself down in, in the mirror and uh, give himself a good talking to. He did cross the line and get his first Grand Slam title. And then they compete in, in that Australian Open. And it's it's close, but not that close. Well, Andy Murray won the first set that day. Uh, I, I remember being in the photographer's pit uh, courtside during that Australian Open because I wasn't commentating on it, but I was on a live microphone that got me down there to just give courtside view, really, of, of what I was seeing. And I'd never done that before. It was absolutely fascinating. And you started carrying around like a sort of dummy camera with a zoom lens in order to 
to sneak into photographer's pits at that point in your career, David? Sneaking anywhere for me is not something that I do particularly <laughs> well. I, I'd managed to um, butter up Craig Tyler, the tournament director, uh, to allow me to do it. And uh, I took my seat and, um, and, yeah, they came to me every 10 minutes or so. And the thing I just found the most fascinating was just to because you're side onto the court and you're court level I, you can't follow the ball it's, it hurts your neck to follow the ball when you're side on like that so i just looked at one player at a time and their footwork and their facial expressions and you could tell how the match was going if you just watched novak djokovic's face because for the first set and a half he and this is why i always understand when he goes through these incredible ups and downs emotionally physically mentally in matches because you can see the stress in his face for the first set and a half and then probably a kind of explosion of of emotion at some point and then this serenity this sheen came to his cheeks he ne- he didn't he stopped looking hollow cheeks he suddenly looked up for it his eyes were clear and and he he took over and murray was having troubles with his shoes and but it, it did feel like one that got away for murray that night um he he was he was in that he was in that peak period of two years when he'd won Olympic gold, he'd reached the Wimbledon final, he'd won the US Open, and this was the next stage. These two are just having all-out war in sporting terms on a regular basis at that point. It was the feather final. Yeah. It was when, when Murray was serving in the second set tie-break and a feather fell down from one from a bird between first and second serve and he hit a double fault and the match really turned on that moment i mean that's probably a very simplistic analysis of what happened but it did it did seem like a pivotal moment and uh i think of all of all murray's five australian open finals that's that's the one i think that as you said david got away that was the one that he could have won because at that point in time it kind of felt like he had djokovic's number i thought having Mm. beaten him in the u.s open final beating him in in the olympic semis um, and those were the two best players in the world at that time, and Murray just couldn't quite do it. It wasn't actually until uh, Miami of, of 2013 that, that that Murray confirmed in the rankings that he and Djokovic were the two best players in the world. It was that uh, famous final with uh, David Ferrer played in vicious heat that we relived earlier on this year, and it was winning that match that, that catapulted him back to to number two in the world. He'd been there before, but not since 2009, I think. Um, so he displaces Federer as the world number two. First time in a long time that that neither Federer or Nadal have been the top two in the rankings. So Murray and Djokovic, although in people's perceptions they'd been one and two for a little while, that's when that gets confirmed. They're, they're seeded one and two for Wimbledon. And David Ferrer is seeded ahead of Rafael Nadal. At Wimbledon, having having just <laughs> lost to him in the French Open final, yeah. barely barely mustering any sort of challenge, yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, the seed it was it was Djokovic, Murray, Federer, Ferrer, Nadal. Um, so I'm not sure what the uh, seeding formula was potentially playing at there, but anyway, the former seeding formula, which no yes. longer applies, it is it? no more. So yeah, that was kind of the, the year, the year of 2013 leading up to that Wimbledon. Of course, Andy Murray had won Queens in 2013. He had beaten Marin Cilic in the final. It wasn't the first time he had he had won Queens. That was his fourth title by that point. Third, 
third. But of course, it, it, it was a good sign. You know, it was very clear at Queen's that he was playing potential Wimbledon winning tennis. Yeah, yeah. He, and he'd, he'd had that year the upset of seeing his good friend Ross Hutchins suffering from cancer and had been involved in the organisation of Rally Against Cancer, that exhibition match after his uh, his winning final in which he and Tim Hemman played against Thomas Burdick and Ivan Lendl. We all remember the, the way he skewered Lendl with that forehand and, and celebrated wildly. And then after that, Boris Johnson ends up on the court playing tennis at Queen's. Um, so that was that. It what, wasn't a pretty sight, folks. No, it wasn't. That's what happened that day. But there was, there was definitely... A feeling, I, I would say, I mean, maybe maybe you, you could accuse this of being hindsight, but there was definitely a feeling that he was a step on from a year earlier. He And, and obviously he'd got a Grand Slam title under his belt. He'd got a win over Federer on the Wimbledon Centre Court, courtesy of the Olympic Games, under his belt. He just felt like he couldn't really be in a better place going into that Wimbledon. I don't think that's hindsight at all. I think that's exactly what it felt like, because... There was a sense of expectation about the 2013 Wimbledon final that I don't think was there the year before because, A, perhaps because it was Federer the year before and the crowd was a bit more split. But just Murray hadn't won a Grand Slam by then. And when he gets to Wimbledon 2013, having the US Open already, not having to win Wimbledon as his first slam, I think was such a big psychological hurdle had already come over. Winning Wimbledon wasn't that much more of a step, whereas going from nothing to Wimbledon was a, was a huge step and I think it took a toll on him. Um, so it felt like he was in a very different place, I think, in 2013 compared to a year earlier. It, it felt like he was ready to win it and it felt like the public were ready to wholeheartedly support him in that plight. Now, I know that Federer not being an obstacle, a direct obstacle for him, Federer lost early to, to Sergei Sikovsky, um, I know that helped <laughs> and I know that there would have been some divided support in that in that final significantly if Roger Federer had been Murray's opponent but there was unquestionably a shift in public perception of Murray now in in my opinion it's a shame that that shift was required I think he'd been completely misunderstood up until that point and um you know willfully in some quarters because of a flippant, joking remark he made about football when he was a teenager that was taken out of context and, and misunderstood. But but whatever, he, he wasn't fully embraced until that moment after defeat in the 2012 Wimbledon final to Roger Federer when his voice broke and he said, I'm getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a two part rehabilitation of Andy Murray in the public's mind. Part one was that speech after the defeat to Roger Federer in the twenty twelve final, and part two was winning Olympic gold and the show of emotion in doing so, the show of of what it meant to him to do that for his country, and it felt different in twenty thirteen. It and felt I, different, and I think part two point one maybe this didn't quite have the cut through as those two moments did. But I remember on the eve of Wimbledon 
2013, uh, the BBC ran a documentary with with Murray, and I think it was with Sue Barker. I think it was called something like The Man Behind the Racket. Yes, and there was a lot of um, dog in it. There was, and there was also, it was the first time Murray had really opened up about Dunblane and how much that impacted him and the story of his family having known the gunman and... I, th- I just think it. I just think it presented Mary as this, as this you know man who had suffered and kept something in, who was now opening up to the public, and then all the other aspects of the interview portrayed him as good-humoured and self-deprecating. Everything that we that we knew he was, and people who really knew him knew he was, but maybe the wider public didn't know. And I think. You know, I'm not sure how many people watched that documentary. I know it was prime time on BBC just before Wimbledon. But I remember for me, that felt like a moment where I got to know Mary a little bit more as well. And I'm sure other people did as well. And actually, I think it's you're a good test case in a way. Okay, you're a tennis fan, but you weren't working in the sport yet. Mm. You didn't know him. You hadn't come across him in the way that you would have done in more recent years. But but you're right. That I'd forgotten that, but it had cut through. No question. That, that altered a lot of opinions because I think look, an awful lot of people thought a lot of him and admired him and, and appreciated him. And a lot of people felt like they didn't know the kind of person that he was through interviews. But there was still an awful lot of people that were just living off that anti-Murray feeling from all those years earlier. And, yeah, it it shifted this whole 18-month period, changed so many minds. And there's a real comfort zone with the, the British public and the British sport-watching pu- public with the narrative of, you know, plucky Brit that can't quite do it. You know, as much as everybody peddled the 77 years narrative and and bigged up Andy Murray's chances and, and bigged up everybody's desire for him to do it, not just for himself, but for the public, there was also a part of all of us, some people more than others, that is comfortable and enjoyed the jokes about British nearly men. And, and women slightly less so. But, you know, we'd, we'd all become... The jokes were very well worn, weren't they? I mean, you still have people shouting, come on, Tim, at Wimbledon, as if that was ever funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do think we were... We, we'd probably never admit it to ourselves en masse, but there was a part of all of us that was a bit reluctant to, to part with that narrative of British nearly man certainly unrelatable over the years and and we are most mostly a self-deprecating nation who is slightly embarrassed by our own shadow I I, I, I certainly my experience is that um and yeah winners aren't that prevalent really over the course of my uh, lifetime there have been some sporting winners um but this was the first man that I'd come across who just felt like he anything was possible and uh and not only with that that he was going to stare it down and take on all of the things that come with it and there's a lot that comes with it when you're from a country like britain with with a grand slam with that level of history that you are up against all of those decades 77 years of nobody having done it um and he was prepared to take that on and of course you had the every year when wimbledon would come around that 
that tally would tick up one year it was 74 years next year it's 75 years it's like the whole world cup 1966 thing and around in euro 96 the lyrics to uh <laughs> to three lions were 30 years of hurt and then two years later for world cup 98 32 years of hurt doesn't quite right so it's no more years of hurt and then the the years start just racking up <laughs> and then you get to the point where people are just sort of not saying the years anymore um so yeah seven luckily for the purposes of andy murray's future logo um he managed to stop it on 77 <laughs> because he was able to form the two sevens into a sort of m what would he have done if it was 78 anyway <laughs> Um, so that's our recollections of, of kind of the the build-up to Wimbledon 2013. But of course, the journey was an incredibly long one and one that, that nobody knows more in depth than, than Andy's mother, Judy, who was with him every step of the way, not just as a parent, but as a, as a coach as well. So here are her recollections of everything up to that Wimbledon final in 2013. If I'm working and um, and I'm asked about it, you know, I'm often, I do a lot of coach conferences and coach workshops, as you know, and that's the kind of question, you know, what was it like, you know, being in the player box at the final of a Grand Slam? Um, and the other times when I think about it are when I go back to Dumblane Tennis Club and I go into the clubhouse and I see the pictures of the boys on the wall as little seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds with all the other kids and then I see their, you know, their Grand Slam winning shirts or clippings that, that the club have put on the walls and stuff like that. And that's when it always really hits me is when I go back to the club because, you know, when I was coaching there as a volunteer coach, you know, I was one of the mum's army that kind of ran the club. We would never, ever have imagined that the boys would end up being Wimbledon champions or that I would end up being a, a you know, a full-time coach or the Fed Cup captain. And that's when it always really hits me that they were just regular little boys from a regular family in a small town in Scotland that doesn't really do tennis. And the enormity of it always hits me when I go into the clubhouse and I see that because it reminds me of how far they went against all the odds. So apart from that, I can't say it comes into my consciousness on a daily basis. That's really interesting you say that, though, because... I guess it's that I know it's sort of a, a cliche, but it's that it's the journey that makes things more special, right? And I guess seeing those those pictures of of the boys when they were young that that makes that that journey hit home for you. Yeah, it, very much so. Um, very much so. When when we're in our own backyard, is because of the unexpectedness of it. Um, and it really, you know, it just takes me back. We were just a family that enjoyed tennis and then it became an adventure. You know, the boys were quite good and then, OK, what's the next stage? And, and you're going down to England and then you're playing overseas. And, and it was really just a huge, big, huge adventure. And that is maybe why I struggle now the last, I don't know, maybe four or five years since they both got to the top of the game. The, the pressure and the expectation of getting there and then staying there. And I found that really difficult and that I found it hard to watch them since they got to the top. I think I enjoyed the adventure and the climb a whole lot more than the pressure of actually being up there and waiting for somebody to pop you off. <laughs> you say look, looking looking back at, you know, the things when they were really young, it all seemed 
seemed completely unexpected. When was when was the first time maybe that it dawned on you or you de- you dared to think that your son possibly could be a Wimbledon champion? Probably in his first Wimbledon in 2005, you know, he was in there as a wild card. I think he was ranked somewhere around 350 in the world. He just turned 18. You know, he had the bum fluff on his face. His shorts were too big for him. He had the big hair. um, And he had kind of just come out of the juniors and was just dipping a toe into the bigger events. And as the grass court events are all in the UK, you have that absolute luxury that many countries can't afford to their young players of wild cards into some major events. And, you know, I remember being at Wimbledon in 2005 and walking back with him from the practice courts on the Sunday before the event started. And we walked past the centre court on our way out of the the gates. And he said, I want to play in there, mum. And I said, oh, you might have to wait a wee while for that. And actually, you know, like literally seven or eight days later, he was on there in the third round against David Nalbandi. And I'll never forget that, that he had that in his mind that's what he wanted to do and in that first year you know obviously played his first match on court two then then he played Stepanek on court one which was a huge win and then he was two sets up on Nalbandian on the centre court and James Bond was watching you Sean Connery was in the royal box and I was sort of switching between couldn't take my eyes off James Bond and then suddenly my son was on the centre court and it was just this massive excitement and adventure you know like I said before and that was the start of it. And that's when I thought, wow, you know, he is two sets up against the world number four and he's never been in this arena before. And actually, you know what? I think he will learn the level very quickly and he will move fast. And actually, about four months after that, four months from that um, appearance in the centre court, he was playing against Federer in the final in the ATP event in Bangkok. And he ended that year at 64 in the world. He went in, he learned the level incredibly quickly and he moved very, very fast. Is looking across the crowd and seeing James Bond watching your son play tennis on, on centre court, are those pinch yourself moments that don't quite feel real? It was absolutely surreal. I was just like kind of mesmerised by the fact that we were sitting in the player box watching Andy uh, unexpectedly. And then, you know, so with my right eye, I could see Andy on the centre court. With my left eye, I could see Sean Connery jumping up and down with excitement in the Royal Box. And, and it was enormously enjoyable. And if I compare that to sitting in the player box eight years later or seven years later, watching Andy in his first Wimbledon final in 2012, um, against Federer, that was absolute torture. And 2013 was also absolute torture. And I would love to go back to 2005 and be able to enjoy them a whole lot more. I do want to talk about the the 2012 final because it it feels significant in in Andy's story in in so many different ways. What is your, what's your recollection of of being in the box and, and, and watching it? I was staying with Andy um, at, at his house, obviously, through the through the championships. I remember waking up very early that morning and being so nervous. And you're just so aware that this is a brand new situation. It's your home Grand Slam. It's Wimbledon. It's what you've watched on the TV. Well, for me, since I was a little girl, and certainly for Andy and Jamie, since they were little boys, it's what, this is what he's dreamed about. Um, and just that, 
We've never been here before. I have no idea how to handle this. I'm very aware as a tennis parent that your children pick up on everything from you that they see in, you know, whether you're sitting in the crowd or whether it's in the run up to it or you're driving in the car to the courts and you're unusually quiet and you're trying as hard as you can to keep things as normal as you can. But it's not normal. It's a Wimbledon final day and we have no idea how to how to act. And I can't imagine how nervous um, Andy must have felt. But I remember like how I felt and just being very aware of trying to make everything normal and relaxed and realizing that I was failing miserably <laughs> and actually trying to just take myself out of the way because I thought you're not helping your kids pick up on everything from you. Just take yourself out of the way. Um, and, and let the team get on with it, which, which of course I did. But, um, you know, I think it's a real mix of that incredible excitement that your son has made a, you know, the singles final at Wimbledon, you know, something that you watched on the TV and you never would have imagined yourself sitting there as the parent of, of a finalist. Um, and this absolute kind of just nervous terror of you want everything to go right for them and you know there's a very good chance that it won't and you can't do anything about it it's a real parent thing it doesn't matter what your kids are doing you know school play sports day whatever it is you feel that you want things to go right for them and you're more than aware that at that stage there's not much that you can do about it it's down to them it's all been in the preparation and they've got to be able to to handle it so it was yeah a mix of excitement and uh yeah torture that the 77 years thing since the last british male champion did that did that ever frustrate you that narrative the the pressure that was placed on on andy's shoulders because he was playing for himself he was he was you know just a guy playing for himself trying to do his best and it wasn't his fault that no British man had had won a Wimbledon in 77 years. It's a really good uh, point because I think that we all got sick of that question you know but when are you going to win Wimbledon as if that's the only thing in the tennis calendar that matters which to the I suppose to the majority of the British public, tennis equals Wimbledon, whereas to the tennis world, Wimbledon is one of the Grand Slams and it's part of a probably an 11-month circuit uh, that you take part in. Um, but, yeah, I think that I became very aware of that from when Andy in 2004 won the US Open Juniors. So his obviously the his first junior Grand Slam, or, you know, his only junior Grand Slam, in fact. But, you know, at that the amount of press that he was asked to do after that and almost every journalist that spoke to him asked that question you know you're now the great white hope of British tennis um you know what about Wimbledon do you think you can win Wimbledon so it's it started from do you think you can win Wimbledon to almost like after when are you going to win Wimbledon and and it went on and on and on and I do remember that when he won in 2013 one of the things that came into my mind was, oh, thank God, we'll never hear that question again because he's done it. And what did we hear? When are you going to win Wimbledon again? <laughs> <laughs> the um, the summer of 2012, the the Wimbledon final against Federer and, and the Olympic gold medal, of course, also against Federer on centre court as well. That feels like certainly, as you say, to the the British public who perhaps only watch tennis during Wimbledon or certainly don't engage with it year round. It felt like such a, a, a big moment for, for Andy in terms of 
public perception, rightly or wrongly. It felt like after that summer, they they understood him a little bit better. How how aware were were you of that, and how did it make you feel? I was aware that many more people who may have misjudged him um, in the past actually realised how much it meant to him, how hard he tried to do it, how much he felt like he'd let the British public down, um, and how you know, yeah, how how much it meant to him. And of course, at that stage, he has no idea if he's going to be in that situation again, if he's going to be able to challenge for that title again. And you know, everybody could see when he became emotional when he was doing his runner-up speech, which is a the toughest thing to do in front of a massive crowd and obviously a worldwide TV audience that you can't see. But you're very exposed out there because everything in a final, everything becomes about the winner. And But actually, I think the way that he handled that, he became very human. His emotions were very open and raw and honest and everybody could see how much that meant to him. And he was absolutely devastated to you know, to to lose that. And I think he won over a lot of people who may have misjudged him um, in the past. And, you know, for those of us who are around him always as unconditional support, uh, whatever happens, you know, whether you win or you lose, it's easy when people are winning. It, you know, being the support is easy. It's far more difficult when things are not going well or when there's a devastating defeat like that. And, uh, you know, for four or five days after that Wimbledon final, he pretty much moped around on the sofa. And actually, if the if the Olympics hadn't come around that year, he may well still be moping on that sofa. <laughs> but he had to get in the saddle and get back again. And because the Olympics was such a different event to Wimbledon, albeit at the same venue, he was part of a team. It wasn't all on him. It was coloured kit. It was a very different crowd. Lots of families, lots of non-tennis fans, just sports fans being there. But he was part of this much bigger thing. It was a very different mindset and environment. And what we did was, which we always do, is take that final against Federer at Wimbledon and analyse it um, to death. And so when he played Fed in the final some weeks later in the Olympics, we had a match on that same court, same surface, same conditions, same opponent, uh, albeit the roof didn't come into to play in the Olympic final, which it did in the Wimbledon final. And we had all the stats, we had all the info, and therefore the tactical plan, the game plan, was great. And you have to do that with players. You have to, if they, especially if they have a disappointing defeat, you have to find a way to help them to get out of it. Okay, what can we learn from it? If we're in this situation again, what will we do? So the video analysis for me is, is crucial. And, and I've been doing that since 2004. I was, I was doing that before anybody else was doing it in the tennis world. So, you know, he went into that final knowing exactly what to expect because he'd He'd played the same opponent on the same court a few weeks before and he was very well prepared for it and he managed to come come through it. And the joy of that was enormous, whereas the devastation of a few weeks before was also enormous, but obviously in a, in a not-so-positive way. I can't imagine Andy Murray slobbing around on a sofa, wallowing. Can you? I think I can, actually. <laughs> um, I, I, I've always thought of him. Uh, I, I don't think he's a busy bee the rest of the time when he's not training and when he's not playing. 
I think I think once he's once he's got a structure, when he's out there, when he's got a purpose, he's full on. I mean, I remember I remember he used to play a lot of computer games and all that sort of thing. And I, and I don't know. I think may, I'm trying to put myself imagine what he must have felt like after after that loss, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I can imagine just flopping, win or lose, flopping. You know. <laughs> in a way almost like a hangover i cannot tell you how relatable i find that (laughs) (laughs) i i mean there's a there's a lot that that strikes me about what what judy had to say there but her her describing andy after that 2012 final that he lost to federer feeling as if he had let the public down i find that extraordinary I I mean I find it extraordinary the extent to which he embraced the whole 77 thing he embraced a sense of public responsibility I think I mean you could kind of hear my in my question there to Judy I I think I mean it's so far from anything in the realms of what I'll ever experience but trying to transpose myself into that situation I can imagine I'd think well screw you it's not my fault that nobody else has come close i'm you know i'm i'm doing this for me and and i'm representing my country but don't put that 77 on me put that on all the jokers that came before me (laughs) (laughs) i I definitely think candy murray is somebody who has an awful lot going on inside his mind at all times i think he's Mm. even if he was slobbing around i can imagine his mind would just be whirring because I think he's that kind of guy. I think he's he's probably learned not to internalize quite quite so much over the years. I think that having his team and having his his family and and people he can talk to has probably helped him in all of this process. But I would say that when you see that that image that judy describes of letting the public down which is not really something i've ever heard before either i can just imagine there's so much that goes on in his mind quietly without him even consciously necessarily thinking about it but it builds and it builds and it builds and then you get a reaction like he had in 2012 um he's a fascinating character it's quite cruel to think that murray could have had a wonderful career and won slams but if he hadn't won Wimbledon in in some people's minds he never would have been complete in a way and and to know now that he was kind of feeling that as well that that outside expectation only only adds to the incredible achievement that I think he did in 2013 which was use learn to use that support as a as something to help him because I can imagine that I mean, the intensity of those two weeks at Wimbledon could be all-consuming or suffocating in a way, but it felt by the end of 2013 that he he was actually kind of riding some kind of wave, and together, Murray and the and the support was some forming some kind of unstoppable force, and there was this sense of momentum behind him, which he really had in the final. But to be able to do that is a is a remarkable achievement, I think. And right throughout that tournament, I mean. I mean, he was the second seed. He was he was seeded to reach the final from the start. But from the second that Federer and Nadal lost, he was anything other than reaching the final would have been a disappointment and, and a failure. He had to progress through that draw, Andy Murray, with with that knowledge. Yes, because that was the year that Sergei Stokowski came along and got in the way of Roger Federer. And it was slightly reminiscent of that year 
that Sampras and Agassi both lost early and Tim Hemman had all the, the hype put on his shoulders and those those extravagant uh, back page headlines have you know messed this up now and we'll never forgive you all of that kind of thing and if you remember as well there was that match that Murray played against Fernando Verasco and was two sets to love down and I mean Verasco is such a dangerous opponent as we know and he was at his peak then he'd he was having his his best the best period of his career that two or three years Um, and digging digging himself out of trouble there was well that was the moment really that was the the most peril he was in of all until the final game of the Djokovic final which uh, in Andy Murray's words could have gone either way if he hadn't won that game I also remember the semi-final being not straightforward he found himself against Jerzy Janowicz of of Poland in the semis who was very much having the best period of his career for about eight months if you know where Jerzy Janowicz is now you're a bigger (laughs) tennis fan than I am (laughs) and I remember that one finished um, under the roof which Murray was really unhappy about because he thought that there was still there was still time in the day to I don't know play half an hour of the fourth set I think it was without the roof and he was thinking that the roof would favor Janovic the big hitter and he had a he had quite an argument on the on the court I think um, with Andrew Jarrett and it was just it was just another heard all he had to overcome another sign of stress that he was under the pressure that he was under um but yeah he did make it through against Janovic I think in four sets it's funny you know in that match in the Vidasco quarterfinal where he's two sets to love down and even in that final game of the final when he's serving for the match two sets to love and five four and I've heard so many people describe those experiences of watching Andy Murray in those positions at that Wimbledon from the various different places. And I feel like the only person that wasn't experiencing major anxiety. I, like, I remember, <laughs> which is extremely unusual for me, I remember when he was two sets love down of Adasco, I still had this calm feeling of, I mean, looking back, naive feeling of just assuming that he would come back and win it. I remember thinking that in the, I wasn't, I didn't have a feeling of great jeopardy in that final game of of the final. And looking back now with all the retrospectives and hearing Andy talk about it himself, you know, I was I was completely ridiculous not to have a sense of jeopardy because, you know, as you've said, he in his own mind felt like if he'd lost that game, the whole thing could have could have got away from him, but I had this feeling of calm watching Andy Murray throughout that whole Wimbledon, a very naive <laughs> feeling of calm. Good I just, sign, though, Catherine. Because I thought he was going to do it, yeah. If, if you were feeling that, then, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about his chances because, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's usually the sort of stuff I would come out with. Um, but I, but I, I, I share the feeling about the Velasco one's interesting because the two sets to love down scoreline, I haven't watched it back since, so I'd, and I don't know what was said at the time. I can't really remember but he had got such a good CV behind him of digging himself out of holes that he'd kind of dug for himself or that a player had performed wonderfully well. And then Murray gets his teeth into a match and then he's just like a dog with a bone and, and to, you know, good luck trying to get, get over the line against him. 
It did feel like one of those Andy Murray matches where he goes two sets to love down and goes, right, I've got you I've got you where I want you. It was almost he wanted to prove that he could do it from, from that point. It had a feeling of that Gasquet bicep kiss match. Yes, at about the US it. Open, yeah. Was that the, the US, US no, Open? No, Wimbledon. No, that was at Wimbledon. Of course it was. The one mm. where he really announced himself to, to a crowd, wasn't it? Um, I, I, I'm talking about the US Open because there, was those, there were those pictures of Will Ferrell uh, doing his bicep kiss in response to Andy Murray on the big screen. Um, Will, Will, Will Ferrell. <clears throat> yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> potato, potato, <anyway>, whatever. Um, <laughs> so we always have this. Um but no, it's 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 Andy Murray. <laughs> Nadal. Nadal. That's right. Um, it is an interesting one. I I think I shared your confidence generally. There were. I was having to remind myself on his behalf in the final game against Djokovic that that he probably still should win this. But I did sense the peril, and even watching it back as we just have. It wasn't anyway. Even the whole match wasn't as straightforward as as it sounds and feels because he's a break up in both sets two and three. Is Novak Djokovic and Murray's having to really dig in, but what a player he was! When you when you watch that back now, we're seven years on, and Andy Murray's clinging onto his career and trying to rebuild his body with a bionic hip. And, you know, doing a brilliant job of it under the circumstances. But whereas Novak Djokovic basically looks the same player right now, um, physically he hasn't had, I mean, he's had the elbow surgery, but physically he's just a different animal altogether. Back then, though, Andy Murray was in his prime. The guy could move. And he also had, with Lendl in his corner, you did sense that there's just a different mindset of, of imposing himself on an opponent rather than reacting to them and, and beating them in. We were talking about it, about Federer yesterday, weren't we, of this ability to beat people all sorts of different ways. Murray had got a bit of that. He, he could play quite indulgent tennis because he liked doing drop shots and he liked doing slices and showing you all the angles and the options he'd got. And then suddenly Lendl comes along and there's just this mindset switch of, I am going to take you out. And if there's a ball there to be hit, I am going to go for it and you are going to suffer. And we'd, we'd seen it in the year before in the Wimbledon final against Roger Federer for a set and a half. He bullied, he manhandled Federer. We saw it in perfect illustration in the, in the Olympics final. Um, and frankly, thereafter, really under Ivan Lendl, um, that was a real trademark. Um, and, and in this match against Djokovic, it's Murray who is the aggressor. It is Murray who is taking the, the initiative. Yeah, that's the thing. There's so many layers to Murray's game that I think we often think of him maybe as a defensive player. I think he, I think he has lapsed into being a defensive player in some moments in his career, but it's his retrieval skills that come to mind first and his ability to counter-attack and, and his lobs. You know, These are all kind of defensive shots or shots hit when he's on the back foot. But when you watch the tennis that he played under Lendl in these, in these two years, 2012 and 2013, Murray's tennis is so just beefy and powerful and he's looking to punch holes with the forehand and as I said I don't really remember the ins and outs of this match but I do remember Djokovic playing 
playing a weird match and not really being able to organize his own tennis and and sort of play a level game at, at the crucial moments and i think i think he was maybe a bit surprised by how powerful murray was and how sort of overwhelming because if you think djokovic this is the only Wimbledon final he's ever lost. You know, Nadal's never beaten him in a Wimbledon final. Federer's lost to him three times. Kevin Anderson's lost to him. But, you know, Murray, Murray had one of the toughest tasks there, beating Djokovic in a Wimbledon final. And he, and he overwhelmed him, both with, both with the crowd behind him and also just the sheer tennis that he was playing on that day. I was struck by the same thing, Djokovic-wise, actually, watching it back. There were moments where he almost looked a bit befuddled Mm. Um, on on the centre court, it, it, there was one particular moment where they they have an exchange at, at the net, or they they have a base line rally that ends up with them both being drawn into the net, and Murray goes for a, a passing shot and, and drills it at Djokovic, not at massively close range, and actually not that well struck a a pass because it sits up at quite a height and it is in the hitting zone for for Djokovic to to get a racket on just needs to shuffle his body out of the way a little bit and instead he just he barely gets a racket of on it and he sort of frames it down into the the bottom of the net and his body goes sort of jelly like in and he does this bemused ex- expression it's almost as if his face is saying, where has this ruthless Andy Murray come from? This An Andy Murray going for, for body shots at me. What What is this? Is this Ivan Lendl incarnate mm-hmm. that I'm faced with in this Wimbledon final? And it kind of summed up the whole, whole thing for me. And that's not to say that Novak Djokovic didn't have chances because he did. I mean, a breakup in the second set, Djokovic, against a guy that had lost the final the previous year from from a setup. Um, you know, at that point it was, to use Mary Carrillo's words, a a massive high wire act for, for Andy Murray. I find watching that back today, and it occurred to me last night listening to the commentary as well on the radio, I find Djokovic subdued. I find him lacking defiance. I think he's too polite in front of that that crowd and I think he he was a perfect sportsman at the end he was very very gracious and he's always gracious actually after a match that is something that you see from him but within a match how many times have we seen a crowd get on the other side of the the net and be cheering the opponent and Novak Djokovic losing his mind and the resilience and the defiance coming out and he's not afraid of who, who he upsets in the moment I don't think he wanted to upset anybody that day. And and I don't think you get the full Novak Djokovic effect if he's not prepared to upset a few people. It's it's kind of a so it's kind of a learning experience for Djokovic because those matches that you're referencing there, David, have all come after that where he's sort of taken on the crowd that I think of the 2015 US Open final, the more recent Wimbledon finals against Federer. Yeah, where's the Where's that big F you to the crowd? Where's the smirk that he had at the end of the Wimbledon final last year? He's not he's not quite himself in that final. And I, I should say, I think two other factors are the heat. I don't think Djokovic tends to like the heat as much as Murray does. We talked about that Miami final that Murray had played earlier that year that was on a baking hot day. It was kind of kind of perfect preparation for for the intensity and the heat of the Wimbledon final. 
And also, I think the semi-final that Novak Djokovic had played against Del Potro a couple of days earlier was a brutal match. I think the longest Wimbledon semi-final in history, five five sets, almost five hours on a hot day. I can imagine he just didn't quite have a full tank Djokovic in that, in that final. And Del Potro, of course kind of gave Mary a bit of an assist in the Olympics a year earlier, having having taken Federer to nineteen seventeen in the third. So I think um Mary just slightly owes owes Del Potro a little one in both in in both of those tournaments. But yeah, all, all these reasons why Djokovic wasn't quite himself. And point two point one, Matt, to use your numbering system from earlier, it's possible that Djokovic didn't recover from the um, the gutting blow of Gerard Butler refusing <laughs> uh, to sit in his players' box for the match, and instead his good holding friend, out for a Gerard in, Butler. Yeah, in uh, the Five Live document uh, documentary, the day we won Wimbledon about this this match and this tournament, Gerard Butler is a contributor because, of course, he was seated in the Royal Box alongside a uh, brother from another mother, Bradley Cooper. They'd accidentally dressed alike. Um, <laughs> but uh, he revealed in that documentary that he had been invited the night before by, quote, my close friend Djokovic. I don't know how many of your close friends you refer to just by their surname, but <laughs> not many of mine. Um uh, but he he decided that as a Scotsman, that wouldn't be appropriate. So he refused that invitation. And lo and behold, a royal box invitation was forthcoming. So Djokovic probably looks up and goes, you rat. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, we invited him. Do you remember when Djokovic beat Federer at the US Open? Gerard Butler was his guest there. And I, and I remember going down to the corridor. I've got a photo of standing right next to the two of them as they were doing that. This is Sparta chant that uh, Gerard Butler does from whatever film that is um, so I guess Djokovic either didn't know that actually he was cheering for Murray or he's forgiven him the Gavin Rossdale of his day <laughs> indeed Did, were you tasked David with going to doorstep Gerard Butler and Bradley Cooper yes and I got absolutely that sounds like a David Law task to me I got thoroughly nowhere <laughs> did, you get did you get turned down by Bradley Cooper uh, yes I did in person, or were you allowed to even get near him? Well, I was sort of reaching across to try and tap him <laughs> on the shoulder and got the sort of, uh, you know, finger wag from somebody. Um, then Prime Minister David Cameron was also in the Royal Box that day. And Matt, you said <laughs> that was like, it was like watching, you know, someone's ex in a player's box. <laughs> yeah, you feel very differently about them now. <laughs> And it yeah. kind, of, kind of tarnishes the thing. <laughs> Poor Andy Murray is never going to be able to watch footage of his greatest triumph without David Cameron's face intermittently popping up. Oh, you can do a lot with Photoshop and editing these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could somebody edit me a David Cameron free version of Wimbledon 2013, please? <laughs> um what are your memories, David, of that final game? So he breaks uh, in the four-all game of the third set, having trailed by a, by a break um, and broken back already in, in the third set. Andy Murray breaks for 5-4, has a sit-down. Not, I mean, you know, the change of ends, not just <laughs> takes himself off for a sit-down. 
And there he is stepping up to the line to serve for the Wimbledon title. And he goes 40 love up. Mm, yeah, it, it was definitely three stages at, t- at the time. I, I mean, it looked like he was just going to sail through it. 40 love. I didn't see any wobble. I don't think he, I don't think he choked like Nadal did in that moment yesterday that we saw from 2008 I think Djokovic ripped it from him and and that was when we saw the resilience of Djokovic he 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 was quietly doing it but he was just going to make Andy Murray win it right there um and then anxiety on behalf of Andy Murray uh, at when it got to juice and there were several advantage points either way that point, I really did think there's a chance this this could have a lot of life left in it. Um, we saw it yesterday with the way Federer came back. I definitely felt that was a possibility because that final game, he was struggling, Murray, to, to, to get what he wanted at that point. But the penultimate point, that lengthy one where Djokovic hits a smash, Murray reaches it, puts it at his feet, runs down a drop volley and and hits the winner I immediately thought and I think a lot of people around and certainly Jonathan Overend in the commentary box thought this is it this is the moment it just it just felt like that that broke the barrier for Murray this this invisible barrier of I can do it I can do it now I can do it you know I really can because that, because he he could have lost that point and and been break point down again. Suddenly he's match point up, championship point, and I just thought, here we go. Um, and you know he smacks in a serve. It looks like it's going to be a winner. You've got this lofted return, the shrieks of the crowd because they think it's going to go out. It isn't out. Murray's got to carry on, and then Djokovic nets the backhand, and it was just the most extraordinary emotion and feeling, really, just to see to see this piece of history unfold. It's one of those points, that final point, where you could take away the images, just play the sound, and I would instantly know what moment it was. The, As you said, the sound of the crowd thinking that Djokovic's return is just going to drift long is is so, so memorable and stands out so much to me. And it was kind of... It's kind of like symbolic of the whole game, in fact. Like, thinking Murray's got it. Oh, no, he hasn't. It's in... Is, is, is it's the same as he's 40 love up oh suddenly it's deuce it's in that it's sort of encapsulated in that moment and then yeah obviously Djokovic nets his backhand and, and there was a lot of talk at the time about how Murray turned to the press seats and sort of pumped his fists at where all the British writers were sitting in the in that corner of centre court and um, I don't know whether he's ever talked about whether there was any further meaning behind that or whether it was literally just kind of instinctive but it did it felt quite an important moment to kind of look I've done it kind of thing now go and write your story about me you know it's kind of yeah you can all hit send on your draft tweets that you've that you've you've had saved for the past three years or whatever (laughs) Um, yeah and he managed um, not to to get involved in any um, watch drama like he did when he won the the US Open just a few months before where my abiding memory of that winning moment is him having a row with Kim about uh, where his watch was that he had to wear whilst collecting the trophy for sponsor reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Um, we talked uh, yesterday, or it came up yesterday, the uh, the very unique situation that Wimbledon has with players boxes where they put uh, support camps in a well very undesirable situation frankly and it makes the experience of being in a players box for a, a big match at Wimbledon a a completely unique one so let's hear about it from Judy Murray. It doesn't happen in any other Grand Slam it doesn't happen on any other court in Wimbledon. The player boxes are at opposite ends of the court or opposite sides of the court. But in the in the centre court, you are mixed up with your opponent's team and supporters, and it is the most uncomfortable place to be. You're nervous and tense enough anyway. It's an incredibly stressful situation. And to have to put up with half of the box supporting the other player or what what it feels like to you is that they're against your player, which which they are, if you know what I mean. But, you know, I remember in that final having suffered the, you know, the semi-final and being so uncomfortable with, you know, people clapping behind me or beside me or shouting for somebody else. I mean, imagine if something like that happened in a football match. It just, I mean, it, it's horrific. It's, if I could change one thing about Wimbledon, that is the thing that I would change. Get two player boxes on the, on the centre court. So for the final, I thought, you know, I sit on my own and I don't speak to anybody anyway. I just train myself on my, my, my kids so that if they look up, I'm always focused on them. And that doesn't mean to say that they are nowadays always looking to me because they're not. But when they were little, they always were because I was the only one that was there. So I remember I always sit on an end because I don't want, you know, if I sit on an end, I only have to sit beside one person. And whoever sits beside me, it has to be somebody who understands I will not speak to them. 
and they must not speak to me and they mustn't chew gum and they mustn't sniff and they mustn't cough and they mustn't touch and they mustn't sigh and they mustn't put their heads in their hands because I'm edgy and I don't want any negativity around me. So I was just there in my zone and all I wanted was, of course, was for things to go right for Andy. What What I was dreading was a repeat of the previous year. And I moved myself out of the player box and I moved a few a few rows back and I sat on an end and I could literally stretch across the aisle and touch some of Novak's supporters, not his player box supporters, the ones who were his additional supporters. And there was a guy sitting opposite me in the aisle and if I stretched my arm across, I could almost touch him. But he was a kind of buster blood vessel type <laughs> character. He was covered in tattoos and he was really aggressive throughout the match you know when when there was a big point you know if Novak saved a break point or if he if there was a you know like a great winner he would almost like reach across the aisle and really pump his fist right beside me and kind of roar and I never looked at him once and I, I thought mate I'm stressed enough anyway I just don't need this but I, I didn't let him put me off but I just thought oh gosh just one more thing to deal with and I don't remember anything about the match apart from the last game, nothing. And that's very unusual for me because having watched so many matches over so many years as a parent and as a coach, I would always remember the key points, you know, the break points, uh, the, the, the big points that you save, the, the major winners, or you know, the, the comeback times. I would always remember those things. I don't remember a thing about that match apart from the last game I remember when it got to 40 love because I could hear my heart beating in my chest and I was just talking to myself and going come on Andy just one more serve one more serve and I was talking constantly to myself you know and suddenly it was juice and I thought oh my god no no please don't let this happen and then Novak got a neck cord and I won't tell you what I said at that point because it was unbelievably rude and um and then Andy got back into it and when he won the last point, it was for me, it was like, I can just remember kind of slumping in my seat and it was just complete and utter relief. It really was. And then, of course, uh, you know, he, he, he wins and he starts to climb up to celebrate with everybody. And because I've moved myself back, he doesn't see me in the player box. He doesn't actually know where I am and he starts to climb back, climb back down. And I didn't go forward. I didn't go forward into the player box, which I could have because I was on an end. It would have been very easy for me to do that. And the reason that I didn't do it was because of all the years of being, you know, criticized for being a pushy mom, overbearing, overcompetitive, you know, all of this kind of thing that I'd had to put up with from the media for so many years, you know. And I thought, I can't go down there because I'll just get it again. You know, there she is pushing herself in, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't move. And Andy started to move back down and all the crowd started shouting, what about your mom? What about your mom? And he came back up again and I felt that I could go down because the crowd were shouting for me to go down. But it, it's a really interesting thing that that's what held me back was, oh my goodness, I'll just get accused again of being the pushy mom and I, I and I didn't go and so I remember that very clearly because I get asked about it all the time what about when he forgot you in the player box and I thought well actually you don't know the story behind the player box and also behind the why I didn't go down when I could have so that's another one of my <laughs> memories from from that day goodness that's that's fascinating I mean obviously as a 
as a parent, as a mum, you, you must have felt just just pure unadulterated pride um, in what Andy has, had achieved. But in terms of somebody that had been completely instrumental in getting him to that point, getting him to being a Wimbledon champion as a, as a coach and a and a mentor, you had been on your own journey. I know that's something you, you spoke about this week or, or a couple of weeks ago, maybe um, some of the, the criticism you'd, you'd received in that regard from, from prominent people. So you'd been, you'd been on your own journey with all of that. Did, did you allow yourself a, a sense of pride in yourself, a sense of achievement? I think, I think for me afterwards, I think, you know, once it had all sunk in and, and I'd gone back home I think that was when I was able to just sit and reflect on it. And, you know, definitely the the relief of it uh, was a huge thing for me. I would love to have enjoyed that final more, but I, I didn't because, because the nerves all became too much to me. And, and it still worries me that I don't remember anything about that final other than that last, than that last game, which is really unusual for me as a as a part parent and part coach watching any of his matches. Um, but I think that for me, I definitely became more confident in myself to speak out after Andy won Wimbledon because all the criticisms that I'd had over so many years from so many people who didn't know me, they, they didn't know the journey that we had been on. They, they don't understand how much in an individual sport the parent has got to make everything happen for the child. You know, if my kids had gone into a team sport they'd have been, and been great at it, they'd have been signed up by a club. The club would have taken care of everything. But in an individual sport, you need somebody to help you with all of that. And when you're, when you're young and going through that, you need to be able to pre- um, concentrate on the playing and the scheduling and the fitness training and so forth. And you need somebody to take care of the logistics and managing the team and making sure everybody's paid. And, and it needs to be somebody that you can trust. So, you know, of course I was around a lot, um, but I I did come in for an incredible amount of criticism from very many quarters just for being around. And, you know, there were times when I thought, wow, you know, I'm getting it in the neck here just for supporting my my kids. But, um, yeah, I think I, I think there was definitely for me a, right, he's won Wimbledon. And I felt able to speak out and able to answer back at some of the people that had criticized criticized me. So for me, it was almost like that was what had to happen. It almost had to be as good as that, that he had to win Wimbledon before I could feel like, right, okay, justified. I can speak my mind now and I can say what, say what I think. Gosh, that's so interesting. You've, um, you've used the word relief twice now not not joy or happiness or or elation relief was, was yeah, that I the mean, the overriding you know, emotion that was the overriding emotion without question that was what it was and you know once we came off came off the center court you know we made our way back to the the, the player area and we were on the and, and you know at that stage of the tournament of course there's nobody left in the tournament, it is really, really quiet. Of course, you've got to negotiate your way through the crowds to get there. But when you get up to the player area, there's nobody there. And actually, the the restaurant and everything is shut because everybody is getting ready to go to the Wimbledon dinner uh, and so forth. So actually, I, what I remember about that was, you know, trying to sort out wristbands to get 
family and friends and supporters up to the Clare area so that we could all celebrate and then trying to find a way that we could order some champagne through the club restaurant <laughs> and all the rest of it. I, I just remember all of that. I just switched into, right, what do I have to do now? And it, it's that whole managing everything because suddenly you're responsible for all of Andy's pals, our friends, our family, the team, the, the wider member of the team, a lot of the, the team's um, wives and so forth were there and actually getting them up into that, that area. So I just switched into that kind of sort everything out mode. And I suppose that in in that situation, that that's where I'm saying I wish I could have enjoyed it more. But for me, it's like, okay, it's the relief of it. And then you suddenly switch into what do I have to do now? What has to happen to now? And of course, for Andy, he, he goes off and he has to do all of his media and all the rest of it. We get to speak to him very, very briefly when he comes up. And then he gets whisked off to do all of the, the media. And then we have to click into, right, who's going to the Wimbledon dinner? Because when you go along to watch a Wimbledon final, you don't know if he's going to win or not. You don't know if you're going to the dinner or not. And then it's that whole thing of, right, how many people can we take to the dinner? How many people are we allowed to take? Who can come? Right, get down into the dressing rooms. I don't know if your listeners would know this, but the dressing rooms are transformed on finals day uh, into a kind of Aladdin's cave of tuxedos and ball gowns and hairdressers and stylists and all the rest of it. So you literally go down, pick what you want to wear, everything from shoes to pashminas to handbags to ball gowns, uh, makeup, face, etc. You leave your clothes behind, they deliver it back to your house and they whisk you off to the Wimbledon dinner. I mean, it's it's absolutely magical. But actually organizing everybody to do that, it's another one of those things where you didn't have time to enjoy the moment. <laughs> there was so much to sort out. Did, did you enjoy the ball once you got there? Well, I, I, I was going to it thinking it was a ball and I was thinking, right, if Andy has to dance with Marion Bartoli, I'm going to have to dance with Dr. Bartoli. And that was that was <laughs> that that was an interesting one. And then we got there and we get there very late because of all the hours of media that Andy had to, to do and it's at the Guild Hall, which is actually a long way from Wimbledon. And it's a, it's a wonderful occasion, but it's not a ball anymore. It's just a dinner. It's a Wimbledon dinner, and there's probably about 500 people in there at the dinner. And of course, they're waiting for all the, the finalists to uh, to arrive. And, and I, I think it was probably half ten at night before we actually sat at the table and, and got something to eat. But I mean, a marvelous occasion to to be part part of. But I was a little bit sad that I didn't get to dance with Dr. Bartoli. Oh, you wanted to do the dancing. Yeah, I was because from for me as a tennis fan from a little girl, I loved all the pictures from the Wimbledon ball of the champions dancing the first dance together. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to watch Andy doing this, and we had no idea that um, you know that it that it was a dinner and there wasn't actually any dancing or 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 any music that had been kind of dropped a few years before that. So I was a little bit sad about that. Was Andy more okay with not having that particular tradition? I think he probably was, to be honest. I think he was starving by the time he got there. That was all he was interested in was the food. Just, just, just finally, Judy, in, in terms of emotions and experience, just for the comparison, how, how did 2016 compare to 2013? Were you able to enjoy it more? Do you remember more of it? Yeah, I definitely was a little more relaxed uh, going into that one. I think um, a, a, a little more relaxed uh, um, and I think it was probably, I think it was partly because he was playing Raonic and I had a good feel about that because Andy returned so well and 
like if he can get into the rallies off the ground, he's much more consistent than Raonic is. The, the thing that obviously Raonic has in his favour is the the massive serve, and Andy's one of Andy's biggest strengths is his ability to return. So I was feeling it was a good matchup for Andy. Um, so that if he brought his best game, I felt that like. He, he, he could win so unless the nerves got to him or he had a bad day um, but that doesn't mean that I relaxed at all I sat on an end again I, I kept myself trained on it I remember uh, Andy being two sets up and my family who had all come down for the, the final um, my mum had brought shortbread down my mum makes great shortbread and she brought it down and my brother had got the shortbread tin out and was starting to pass it round um, the the box. I hadn't sat in the box. I'd sat back again. And um, and I absolutely snapped at him. And I went, what are you doing? I said, this is not a picnic. This is not over yet. But in their mind, Andy was two sets up. And, you know, it was it was like they had relaxed that, that he was going to get it. And, you know, I, I can't expect people to be like me. I've lived and breathed every moment of this. And I know it's never over until the last point's hit. And I knew that they were relaxed. They were enjoying it. They were seeing it as a great day out, great occasion and all the rest of it. And I wish I could have been more like them. But I absolutely snapped at him to get the shortbread away from me. And I'm not looking at you. And I'm, you know, I'm, but um, yeah, I think I enjoyed that one more. It was slightly less stressful because it was a little more, maybe a little more, maybe straightforward in the end. But um yeah, I and and we knew what to expect afterwards. You know, we knew how to do the where to get everybody to, how to get the passes. We knew what was going to happen with the Wimbledon dinner and and all the rest. Of it. I remember taking my mum to the Wimbledon dinner and getting her all dressed up in the dressing rooms in the long dress, and she was absolutely loving it. Um, and she hadn't come to the first one to the to the dinner, so that was a that was a wonderful experience um, as well. And the other thing I remember about the 2016 one was we were in a convoy of cars going from the All England Club to the Guildhall, and the car that I was in with my mom and a couple of Andy's team was following Andy and Kim and um, and, and I think maybe a fitness trainer. And our taxi driver, our courtesy car driver, was saying, I don't know why we're going this way. This is a, I wouldn't go this way to the Guildhall. And and then we, we came around this corner and I thought, right, we're in Wandsworth. And Andy used to have a flat in Wandsworth. And I said to the driver, I know why we're going this way, because there's a McDonald's. And we, right enough, you saw the, the golden arches were up there and the taxi, uh, the courtesy car that Andy was in, to come straight into the drive-thru at McDonald's. And we were all laughing because from a very, very young age when I used to drive a minibus down south with dozens of kids in it to play little competitions from when they were very young, we always had McDonald's when the tournament was finished on the way home. And here he was, just one Wimbledon, and it, he, did, he wanted to do exactly the same things that he's always done all through his life, you know, whether he's at an airport finishing a tournament all right i'm finished i can eat mcdonald's now and that was that was what he did and he had the tuxedo on and he's leaning out the the window of the car and you just hear everybody screaming in mcdonald's you know when he's ordering his big mac and fries or whatever because he was absolutely starving you know and this is like 10 o'clock at night and we're still not at the guild hall because of all the the media and obligations that he had to fulfill as being the the champion so i remember that very clearly about being on the way to the wimbledon dinner that we stopped at mcdonald's to final question for you gd is there is there a part of you that 
the hopes that one day one of one of Andy's kids will grow up to be a professional athlete so that he can finally understand what it's like <laughs> to to be a parent of an athlete and watching on hopelessly that is such a good question um you know I think I didn't realize how much my mom and dad did for me um until I had my own kids and I started carting them around their football and golf and all the things that they did when they were when they were little. So, uh, yeah, in a way, it <laughs> might be quite nice for him to experience that and and to perhaps understand everything that <laughs> kind of went into it when he was when he was young. But um, yeah, I get asked a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, we'd like to see them all playing tennis, and I go, "Well, I'd actually rather teach them how to dance." <laughs> That's so lovely, Judy. That was uh, made me quite emotional there in parts of it. That was amazing. Thank you. I hope it. <laughs> I hope it's enjoyable to to relive some of it rather than rather than painful. I know some aspects yeah, of it. Yeah, I, must... I, I think so, and I actually think that it's. Um, I think it actually helped me a lot when I did my book. I did a big book tour behind it with, with the, the publishers that, that, that I worked with. And um, the more that I talked about the journey, you know, of course you're remembering things that you'd probably parked for, for years, but I think it really helped me a lot to talk about the whole journey all the way through because, and, and I'm sure it, it was because I've, I've had this kind of pushy parent, over-competitive, she's a nightmare tag for such a long time it was almost like I wanted people it helped me a lot to share with people here's actually the journey that we went on here's why I had to do what I had to do here's why I was always there here's why I was so often on the TV because you know if you watch Wimbledon there's no ad breaks Um, you know there's 20 seconds or so between points there's 90 seconds at the changeovers the cameras the commentators they need somewhere to go they go into the player box and they pick people out in a way that if I'd been the parent of a cricketer or a rugby player or a footballer, nobody would mm-hmm. ever have found me in the crowd and nobody would ever have been interested. But the nature of tennis, individual sport, the scoring system of it, meant that you are in the public eye a lot without asking to be. And I just always felt that I was feeling like I had to justify why I was there. And doing the book and doing the book tour actually really helped me with that because I felt I was letting people understand why I was always, why I was always there, why I had to be there, and everything that we went through to, you know, to get the boys to the top of the, of of the game, and I, I, I probably it feels like I shouldn't have had to do that, but mm. I, I really helped me to do that. So actually, when I talk the story and I relive the story, I feel like I can enjoy it a bit more because I think that more people understand actually everything that we went through yeah. to get there. Don't worry, Judy, you were still on camera less than Gerard Butler and Bradley Cooper. Every cloud. They were they were less concerned about getting too much screen time. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, that was great. Now, what a great interview! Mm. I mean, really, so interesting. When I think of all the years I've known Judy and had conversations with her, but or heard her speak on the radio or heard her interviews, I mean, I learnt a lot there from her about what she went through and what the process is like and the feelings are. Um, and I, I mean, I, I find her just incredible. I, I, I have so much respect for what she has has done, both in terms of preparing them and helping them as brothers to become what they they became as tennis players. But 
more recently, the way she's just carried on and used her status and platform and, and profile to just go after the causes that matter to her in terms of building a female coaching workforce and, and just giving opportunities and helping parents to to figure out ways to to get their kids active and play in sport. I, I don't know, I just find her ins- inspiration. I really do. Absolutely. I, f- I feel the same. And it was fascinating hearing her talk about how Andy winning Wimbledon in 2013 gave her the confidence and the validation to do all that that you just described, to use her platform and to to pursue the the causes that, that she felt so impassioned by. And that's, um, that's a fascinating angle to it all. Um, and that's what Tennis Relived is all about. <laughs> um, just by way of contrast, David, uh, though he got turned down by Bradley Cooper and Gerard Butler uh, in his doorstepping uh, duties after the final, you did, David, manage to track down um, William murray father to andy and jamie and uh, having just heard in in great and fascinating detail about the sheer anxiety of being a parent watching a child compete at a wimbledon final how's this for a contrast what, what, what was that like to witness? That was terrific. It was fantastic. Absolutely wonderful to see. We really enjoyed it. It was a spectacle and uh, it was great fun. Great fun. Uh, to think all the years that, that Andy was coming up, and Jamie, of course, and Jamie's won a, a title here at Wimbledon as well. I mean, what was going through your mind? Um, during the match, uh, I was just loving it. I thought um, I never thought about the fact it was getting to an end because the whole process was just so good. Um, I thought Andy did a thoroughly professional job. Um, it didn't look as if I think it maybe one little wobble, and uh, obviously the, the last game, you know, we had to sort of really work to get that one and get over the line. Other than that, I thought he did a great job, a great job. So it was wonderful. It was great. So you, you actually seem like you in, have enjoyed the experience because when the camera goes up onto the, the box, you see a lot of contorted faces, a lot of people, obviously very nervous. Do, do you not feel the nerves when he's playing? Of course, you, of course you do. But the thing is, you've got to embrace. It's how often is this going to happen? You know, you just got to embrace it. So I loved it. And I, I do, go and do it again. You know, I know Andy wouldn't buy it, certainly, but it was great, fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's been a long time coming for him, but, yeah. but fully deserved. And, and I imagine you, you'll all be celebrating tonight. Yes, well, uh, apparently so. Apparently so. I've been told a few things that we're going to be doing, um, and so I'm looking forward to that as well. So we'll spend a bit of time with Andy. Um, I think we're maybe going to the ball, and uh, I'll get sort of put on the best Evan <laughs> Tucker. So I'm really looking forward to that. It'll be another very proud moment for you, I'm sure, and I'm sure it was when he was lifting that trophy yeah I think uh, to see it's, it's, it's still a bit surreal when to see him do that I've got to be honest it's a bit surreal um, and I'm sure it'll take a few days maybe a few weeks a few months um, to take that all in uh, for it to sink in and bed in that the Wimbledon champion is British and that's not happened for 77 years or something ridiculous like that. and he's your son apparently so yeah <laughs> so, so I'm happy very happy fantastic well many congratulations okay, thank to you, very you much appreciate it appreciate it okay have a good day I'll have what he's having. It <laughs> uh, was fantastic, actually. I, I, I'd never met him before and um, felt a bit a bit shy about asking him, but he couldn't have been more charming and, and helpful. And and it did take me aback seeing just how composed he was and how chilled he was about it all and, and how much he seemed to be enjoying it. Um, but, I mean, good for him. You know, it's uh, I, I, I guess that you, you can't 
not everybody's going to react to these things in the same way. Um, I'm, I think I'd probably be somewhere between the two. I, I, I think I, if it was me, but I would be in t- inside, I would be absolutely churning. But then, as he said, he he was nervous. But what a great what a great way to be able to approach it, you know. <laughs> Quote, I think there was a little wobble. <laughs> my my favourite description of the final game. Just a little yeah. wobble. <laughs> just a little wobble, but it was great fun. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that is, just thinking about it, the point you made about Judy Murray felt like if Andy didn't win that, she might have still been getting flack. As as ridiculous as that is, she was she was much more involved in the tennis side of things and and the results mattered more not sort of to her personally of course but in terms of her image i suppose was kind of on the line in 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 that final as as i said as ridiculous as that is that is the reality that she's talking about there judy whereas for william it was it was a completely different scenario and maybe he was just able to just appreciate it for the match and the moment and for what it was. I mean, clearly mm. it was by just by how he sounds there. It's, but it is an interesting contrast. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Is Bradley Cooper the most famous person you've ever been turned down by, David? I mean, to be honest, I didn't know too much about him at the time, so I can't, I can't say that I was... Weren't you turned down by... This is a fun section. Weren't yes. you turned down by uh, Matthew Perry? Yes, I was. Yeah. yeah, Bradley Cooper is more famous than Matthew Perry. Not, mm, not so much. Do you think at the time? Yeah. Do you think uh, Matthew Perry now? Was, yeah, the bloke out of Friends. Friends is massive. Yeah. Um, so that I, I was, I thought that was a bigger deal at the time, to be honest. Um, but you know, Alex Ferguson said yes to me after uh, the 2012 US Open final, so that was better than all of and it. And Sean Connery, didn't you get Sean Connery? Yeah, um, and Kylie Minogue. I'm, once. I'm not interested <laughs> in the yeses, David. I'm interested in the noes. <laughs> David, uh, you keep a very good archive. Please tell me you have your interview with Kylie Minogue. You, you've interviewed Kylie Minogue about tennis. Yeah, it didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> Did it did it get better than my interview with Chris Froome about tennis, where he hadn't heard of the Williams sisters? <laughs> um, I, it was similar. Yeah, it was similar. I did most of the talking. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to hear that. We we were going to run the uh, the Yannick Noah interview next week, but I think we might need to shelve those plans <laughs> for the for the sixty eight second interview that I did with Kylie Minogue. But which when, but which when I got, and why I got more messages about that interview than I've had about any other. I, I by the when time I finished and it, why I was at Wimbledon on the player lawn area, and she got brought over um, onto the lawn, and I, I happened to know Pat Cash, who happened to know Kylie Minogue, and who asked her to do it with me uh, uh live on five live and uh she didn't seem like she wanted to and i could barely see her since so she was so small um <laughs> and uh anyway so we, we 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 didn't really click as a as an interview and inter- <laughs> <interviewer laughs> as an interviewee um so yeah we can we can put that 68 second interview up if you like uh in which i got probably about 12 messages from friends who care nothing about tennis straight afterwards yeah, I think the world needs to hear it. I think <laughs> what better way to round off Tennis Relived than to relive David's interview with Kylie Minogue. Why have, been, why have we been faffing around reliving all these classic tennis matches when we could have li- been listening to this gold all this time? 
Um, on that bombshell, <laughs> I think that brings us to a close with our penultimate Wimbledon relived episode. The um, closing the page on on Andy Murray ending seventy seven years of hurt for British men's tennis, and of course, as referenced there with um, with Judy, went on to do it again just. Just three years later, although in your interview with uh, William there, he said, oh, I'm sure I'm sure Andy doesn't want to do it again. <laughs> I think he probably does quite want to do it again, actually. <laughs> Andy did. Um, and that leaves us with just one more episode of this would have been Wimbledon fortnight. And that is a trip to 2015. And which match, Matt? We're going for the plucky Brit after... After the victorious Brit, we're going to um, the third round in 2015 and Heather Watson against Serena Williams and everything that went on with that match and that story for Serena and Heather Watson. A tribute to plucky Brits through the ages. Hmm of which there have been many. So that's how we'll be rounding off our Wimbledon Relived. Gerald, you've got one more day in the spotlight. Use it wisely. I, I want to see content. Oh, don't worry want... about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, you know, the, the, the cat cannot get off Instagram. <laughs> David's found a new avenue for sort of trolling Daryl, which is to just insult Gerald. Yeah, just as a reminder, if you're sensing a bit of animosity <laughs> in David's tone of voice, Gerald's owner, Daryl, is both a um, a friend of many years to, to David, or former friend of many years, it would seem, to, to David. They went to university together. And also a, a, a man who has beaten David now in two tennis quizzes. So um, relations between David, Daryl and Gerald are at a tense stage. Mm, frosty. <laughs> <laughs> but we love you, Gerald. And uh, yeah, we look forward to you being our mascot for one more day. Matt, David, thank you. Judy Murray, thank you as well. Um, fantastic to have her contributions to that episode. And we will see you all back here tomorrow one last time. 